0: Chapter thirty seven of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty seven. The pleasure of the two old ladies, wandering with their knitting unravelled, their corns uncut, their knees unmassaged, about a desolate house that recked not of them, but whose whole ardour and interest was concentrated on the bed where the mistress of it lay, slowly recovering from concussion. "'was Amy's best welcome home. "'Oh, my dear child, "'now we shall know some peace and comfort again,' "'said Mrs. Bowman. "'I, for one, am not afraid of admitting "'that I am not so young as I was, "'and my joints literally crack for you. "'I am much, much stiffer than I was before you went away. "'I hope you have not forgot how to massage.' "'I have forgotten nothing and learnt everything,' "'said Amy gravely. "'Got any new stitches or patiences?' inquired Lady Meadrow. "'No, but I believe I can invent some. "'And, Amy, the new cook has got quite out of hand since you were away. "'She won't take orders from me or Phoebe Bowman, "'from nobody, in fact, but poor dear Edith's nurses, "'who quite rule the house. "'Nobody attends to us. "'Oh, it has been so miserable. "'And now you have just come back in time for Christmas. "'That's something to be thankful for.' "'A nurse-ridden house is awful, I know,' said Amy. "'But isn't one of them going?' I heard. "'Oh, yes, you hear everything, dear. "'We hear dear Edie's bell going for you every minute. "'But we are not jealous. "'We realize that you have the art of soothing the invalid like no one else. "'One wouldn't wish to deny her any comfort after what she has gone through. "'And now, Amy dear, I do wish you would tell us something about it.' You had the luck to see it all from the very beginning, and we have been told nothing. We don't even know what hospital Jeremy put you in the next day. He had been so unaccountably close about it all. Was it—Lady Medrow stopped. Amy's face had darkened ominously. Dear ladies, if you value my services, indeed, if you have any regard for my sanity, so to speak, never try to pump me about that surely you got all the facts about the accident out of the papers i understood they were full of horrid details for weeks oh dear but it isn't the same thing still i quite quite understand how painful it is for you to recall it only one can't help wondering and of course you had it all first-hand so to speak hold your tongue isabella medrow cried mrs bowman loudly hasn't amy expressly desired you not to question her about it she naturally wants to forget the thing as soon as possible all the horrid past should be as dead of course come dearest amy let us two go and see what erina is doing it was not worth while to make amy nervous considering how much depended on her and the wiser stater old lady had divined that the child was the best lever to raise the level of amy's altruism and her spirits both. Amy was the mainspring of the domestic watch that had lately been allowed to run down, and she looked paler than ever, wasn't brusque any more, or ran upstairs two steps at a time as she used to, but sighed when she had accomplished the steep turret-like stair which led to the nursery. She must on no account be overdriven. The nursery was the likeliest place to find her. She spent all her spare time up there with the child, for whose sake she had committed a social indecency, almost a crime. She knew that Jeremy Dan thought so. She knew that, although she had crudely forced him to see her carry out this misdemeanour, he could not forgive her for its perpetration. He sought her no more in the nursery. To Edith belonged now the odd half-hour before dinner. He stayed much later at the office in these days. Sometimes he did not return to sleep— there were good clubs in Oldfort, of course and the society of mr johnson who had not for some reason or other set foot in the domain of swarland since amy's homecoming there was nothing in that his visits had been less frequent for some time before the accident the tragic hero of this drama to put his behaviour into terms of everyday life made himself disagreeable his demeanour was small he was less brutal than tiresome Amy sometimes thought of him as a cruel West Indian planter who had had an intrigue with one of his female slaves and wishes to forget it. Amy both forgot and forgave him. She was even grateful to him for not being too charming, and thus giving her an excuse to go back on her decision. His evenings at home he spent in the library, which Amy never entered. She was cut off from the informing literature of Case G., if, indeed, she had wanted to batten thereon. But the curiosity of morbid literature, which was her only excuse for glancing at the volumes, had left her for always. As for ordinary light reading, she found books, and a change of them, deposited on a little table just within the door of her room, by some brownie with a long arm. She knew who it was, and saw a tiny opening in the wall of his dislike she never mentioned his graceful act or thanked him though it touched her he would not have liked her to speak of it she knew him so well now his fads and his foibles they conversed only at meals backed by an appreciative audience of two old women they were not afraid to interpolate each other and hold long discussions on art and ethics and literature lady medrow and mrs bowman beamed on their dear amy arguing so cleverly with their dear Jeremy. They had both agreed to forget the strange communication Edith had made to them on that summer's day before the railway accident. It was probably an invention. Edith was likely to be hysterical after her confinement. The very discreet behaviour of Mr. Dand and Amy, before and after, lent no colour to Edith's absurd theory of their flirtation. So the two wise old women argued." Why, Jeremy was quite nasty to Amy sometimes, and gave her his orders with a sharpness that was almost rude. He thought nothing of contradicting her flatly, and never so much as condescended to look at her when she was speaking. He seemed to resent alike her dominion over the little girl and her influence over Edith. He permitted himself an impatient gesture at times, when, in his hearing, imperious and frequent messages came from Mrs. Dand to the effect that she was awake, and demanded Amy's immediate company. A lover is not apt to be jealous of a woman and a child, they reflected, so that was not it. Perhaps he was getting tired of Amy's masterfulness, and thought she took too much on herself. They did their very best for Amy, when, as sometimes happened, he was down on her, and they defended her when some domestic act of hers had seemed a little too sweeping, some speech too arrogant even to their indulgent selves they excused her occasional bursts of temper on the score of ill health amy they assured mr dand had never been really well since she came out of that mysterious hospital she must be let alone and not interfered with when she was moody did not dear jeremy think so they knew well that he their son was at bottom very fond of amy although he took her up so short every now and then jeremy must be patient and realize that amy in spite of the severe shock she seemed to have had was working round and doing very well when she was cross it was best to let her alone and did not jeremy think that he ought to increase her salary he listened to them civilly heavily sulkily with that curious air of bored simplicity that distinguished him. He did not look very well either. Perhaps the accident had shaken him a little. But no one ever dared to mention that to either Mr. Dand or Amy. It was the one subject they could not stand. Lady Medrow felt it hard enough to live in the very house with two actual participants in the greatest railway mystery that had baffled expert curiosity for years, and glean no information, but so it was. Phoebe Bowman jumped on her whenever she even distantly alluded to it. "'What has become of old Johnson?' Dulce Dyconson inquired, when she came to Swarland with her husband for Christmas. "'Dad looks awfully seedy, but none of you seem to see it. I wonder if it is Mr. Johnson he's wearying for. The situation seems strained somehow. I don't feel comfortable here. Spookish! Amy's eyes agitate me!' "'Oh, nonsense!' said her grandmother pettishly. "'Don't go putting it into Amy's head "'that she is ill or she will be no good. "'She always was anemic. "'And as for Mr. Johnson, "'Remy never mentions him. "'I suppose he sees enough of him at Oldfort. "'Remy seems as if he didn't care "'to try to get back here now except Sundays. "'And Mr. Johnson doesn't come over even then. "'I declare he hasn't been in the house at all "'since the accident.' "'She dropped her voice.' Amy and Mr. Dand came in. They all lunched. An argument arose in which Amy and he took part with vigour and a slight degree of acerbity. Dulcie noticed it, and yet the subject was by no means a personal one, the merits of the great system of miracle-working at Lourdes. "'Why on earth is Dad so bitter?' thought the daughter. He looked just now as if he could have killed Amy when she disagreed with him, and said she didn't believe it worked for good in the main.' Amy had seemed to feel his unkindness. When they all rose from the table, she had tears in her eyes. There was a passage enclosed by two swing-doors that led to Mrs. Dan's room. Half an hour after lunch, the two casuists met in this narrow arena, and dropped their arms, the first time since Blois. They were man and woman again for one brief moment. He took her sharp little chin in his hand, and looked at her tenderly, simply, sadly. The air between them was weighted, with a wealth of imagery and loving detail, intolerable to those who are not themselves in ecstasy, or who, having been so once, have come forth of that beatitude. She realized it. Her lips quivered. "'Well, does it work?' he asked. "'I will tell you later,' she replied, with an attempt at jauntiness. "'You don't look very well,' I am sorry I was so cross at lunch. I can't think why you were. Can't you? Well, it isn't Lourdes. I don't care a pin about Lourdes. Lourdes can't cure me. Goodbye. Go in there. I hear my wife calling you, as usual. Damn it all. Amy, how can you... She was gone into his wife's room. Her long white arm and hand, hanging down at her side, seemed to trail after her, and offer him the handshake of adieu, but he did not take it. He was disgusted with one of the many instances of her bad taste. She ought to have kept away from his wife, Mrs. Dand had been gossiping with her nurse. So common of her, thought Amy, condemnatory in her turn. She was pacified by seeing how wonderfully well Edith looked, and after all, if the conversation of nurse Butcher amused her. "'Amy!' exclaimed Edith joyously, raising herself in bed. "'I have made nurse put me on my new peignoir to show you. "'Doesn't it look nice and naughty?' "'Oh, I don't know. "'I'm not one of those people who insist on associating pink with impropriety,' "'replied Amy good-humouredly. "'I should say it was very becoming. "'Don't you think so, nurse?' "'Quite Mrs. Dan's colour,' replied the nurse perfunctorily. "'I always think that invalids, like newborn babies, should be simply smothered in frills,' continued Amy, "'and there's nothing prettier in the world than a child's cot, all pink and transparent, like puffy clouds in summer.' "'You ought to have a nice little baby of your own, miss. You do seem so fond of children,' remarked the nurse. "'I have seen you myself, hugging of that dear little eldest girl, miss, as if you would like to eat her up.' oh yes miss Stevens is perfectly mad about my errand and nurse i shall get jealous one of these days and insist on her marrying and starting an infant of her own and oh amy do you remember how i used to want you to marry mr johnson why do you remember it now has mr johnson gone and got himself married to someone else yes how quick you are it was pretty obvious well yes perhaps it was I thought I should enjoy breaking the news to you. Jeremy has just been in to tell me about it. He says he has known about it some little time. Well, I think I can bear it, said the girl laughing, and that accounts for his never coming over all this long while. I suppose so. Jeremy owns that he has missed him. I certainly have thought my dear moping dreadfully. He sees Mr. Johnson at Oldfort every day, but that isn't the same thing. What they like is pottering over books together. It is a very old tie. I have told you about it, nurse, haven't I? But, of course, this business of getting married and engaged first would have accounted for any amount of neglect of old friends. Men are all alike. When dear Jeremy was courting me, he didn't go to see Dulce at her school, or take her out for months. She told me so herself. But to do her justice, when we met formally, her new mamma, you know, she admitted that I justified his neglect. Pretty of Dulce, wasn't it? She always did admire me, even when she defied me most. Yes. Whom has Mr. Johnston married? A Miss Millicent Georgette. Is there money? I should prefer him to marry money somehow. Poetic justice. How do you mean? No, Jeremy didn't say anything about money. I expect we shall have to give him a big wedding present." "'Poor Jeremy. He hates giving presents. But Mr. Johnson is such an old chum. They are living at Blois now with her mother.' "'A Blois girl, was she? Yes, such a quaint old place, Blois. I love it. Very old-fashioned, though. The grass grows between the paving stones of the clothes. We must really make a party to go over there one day, when I get well, nurse and all.' to think all these years you have been here with us, Amy, and have never been shown it, and it's our show-place. It's a perfectly charming cathedral. "'Delightful, I imagine,' said Amy. "'I shall expect to see it done up with cosy corners by Liberty. "'And about the new Mrs. Johnson? Did she live in the clothes among the canons?' "'I expect so. She's one of the best people there,' he says. "'And in a cathedral city nobody's anything who isn't clerical.' I suppose they'll be coming here to stay? I suggested asking them to Jeremy, but he threw cold water on it. He says he hates new women, but as a matter of fact, he's simply dying to see Johnson again, and he can't have him without his wife, can he? At any rate, not at first. Jeremy is quite lost in the library without him. You know Johnson is clever about books, anyhow. Yes, he is. And the image of that horror had quite a success. They say the dear Queen has read it. You knew it was his, didn't you? But, Amy, what I can't get over is Mr. Johnson caring to marry at all. If he was really capable of such an ordinary thing as falling in love, I can't think why he didn't fall in love with you. Seeing each other here, day in, day out, propinquity, they say. Are you faint, miss? Nurse Butcher asked quietly rather but it's nothing the shock of mr johnson's marriage you used to want to marry me to mr johnson edith remarked dulcie dyconson who had come in and taken up a position on the other side of the bed go and lie down amy dear yes i once thought him handsome but i have come to hate people who even look unhealthy or morbid it's living with a sportsman and hearing his ideals all day long do you know, William made me cut Millicet when I was in town last, when we met over our Christmas shopping. Millicet was buying bangles in Bond Street. I must confess it looked ridiculous. William also advised me to sell my collection of books. That was good biz. I cleared eighty pounds odd on them. I saw a battered paper copy of Bellamy on William's chest of drawers yesterday when I was putting fresh covers on said amy slyly she had recovered oh yes it is part of a sporting man's paraphernalia that sort of book and as he can't read more than a word of french it won't hurt him don't poke fun at william amy he likes you and he is much concerned about your health he says we all work you too hard here nonsense said amy sharply i like it i'm all right the winter always tries me and the cold makes me feel faint Bad circulation, that's all. Nurse Butcher was looking at her curiously as she left the room. End of chapter 37 Recorded by Lisa Reichert